You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to Radio Ramadan 365. You're listening to Millennium Discourses. My name is Sajad Ayyub. You can listen to Radio Ramadan on FM 87.7 or 1530 on AM radio station, or on our website, www.rr365.co.uk. And if you're in your car, you can listen to it on the DAB radio station on RR365. We'll be discussing the Millennium Discourses as a 20-part series by Etzko Skatema. Etzko is a Shadli Sheikh, uh, a teacher of the Shadli tradition, He's also founder of the skatermagroup.com, where enhancement of human excellence in leadership training and management consulting to organizations. It's been run for the last 30 years. Um, and I'm Sajad Yub, your host, and I'm an aspiring author, business development strategist, and life coach. And we look forward to, for you to join us for the next 20 series of Millennium Discourses. Millennium Discourses is a collection of discourses that was put together in the year 2000 by Sheikh Ibrahim. It's important aspects of our relationship to self and how we believe ourselves to be in the year 2000. Welcome back to Discourse 4 with Sajad Ayyub and Sheikh Ibrahim Skaitama. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam. Discourse four, feeling the breath. There's a lot of talk about breathing and there's the likes of Wim Hof, Dutch guy, amazing breathing technique, which I personally do myself. And the stories of Buddhist monks and their breathing and raising of their core temperature and their body temperature. How do you see the interplay of breathing and Islam? So, I mean, first of all, Sajjad, I think it's, uh, you know, using breath for inner work is not foreign territory for anybody who's involved with Tasawwuf. I mean, we do a hadra, which is a a very deliberate use of breath. Yeah, what is that? that chanting mm. deliberately using your breath uh, uh, so there are they're, they're all, most of the tarikas actually do deliberately work with breath in order to clarify consciousness in order to clarify your inner space we have spoken before about the uh, um, about the the uh, uh, the effect of internal dialogue on producing a filter and that filter creates the condition where you don't see the world as it is. You actually, in a sense, see a world which is a a caricature that reflects your own prejudices rather than the world. You're looking through veils Mm. and the veils only allow in the bits that you allow in, that, that are allowed in, the rest gets excluded by the structure of the veil. So like the inner veil of language has a structure and it only allows the bits in that aren't excluded by the structure. So 
so we and and what we're trying to do on the path is we're trying to see things as they are and in order to see things as they are we need the inner dialogue to quieten now one of the things about dialogue is that it is dialogue and dialogue means it's aspirated in other words breathed you know and you you've indicated that you use Wim Hof's technique I guarantee you that after you've done that very powerful breathing technique that, you know, you hold your breath, you breath and you hold your breath, that, uh, you know, there's not a lot going on in your head afterwards. You are very quiet. And it's because you have emptied yourself of your noise. It's come out on your breath. And because you, at the end of that, you've held your breath, you've created such distress, physiological distress, that your attention couldn't be soaked up. I mean, it's very, if you're holding your breath for over uh, 90 seconds, it's very difficult for you to still work out what you're going to say to your wife because she didn't make you your tea this morning. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, it's like, it's it requires a lot of attention to do this. Hmm. So in the first instance, what happens by working with breath, and for instance, what we do with Hadra, the powerful breathing, is that you're literally emptying yourself of your internal dialogue. You're breathing it out. You, you're exhaling it. You're expirating it. You, you know, so, so that you do then have an experience of quietude afterwards. So... Um, uh, I don't think it's uh, it's so you see the way in which we've got the the the, the, the question phrased here. It is like you know we have the Islamic thing and then we have what everybody else does. You know the Buddhists and Wim Hof and so on. That's not a useful way I think of kind of structuring how one looks at the problem. You know, their ways of looking at the world. Wim Hof's good way. There's uh, there's uh, and it's the Buddhist way. There's etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then there are human beings who breathe. Did you know that Muslims breathed? <laughs> Everybody breathes. This is a quite a common human phenomenon. You know, there isn't an Islamic way to breathe. That would be quite odd. You know what I mean? I mean, just like you know, this is so. So they're kind of. It's, this is. This is not about sort of bolstering our kind of Islamic identity. It's understanding that there's this core thing that's happening on an ongoing basis, which all people throughout the world in all sorts of traditions have discovered is actually closer to us than our identity. The being that came into the world before they decided to call him Sajjad, that being breathed. is the oldest thing about you. From your very first step into this world, you breathed. Before you knew how to say Alhamdulillah, before you were taught any formulae about how to describe your life, the being that was here was a being who breathed. If you want to understand, experience who you really are, then don't ask yourself, who am I the Muslim? Who am I the Buddhist? Who am I the Wim Hofleit? The Dutchman or whatever? Who am I the breather? Who is the breather?
And one of the things you discover when you investigate who is the breather is that the breather is actually colonized territory. Because you don't breathe naturally. Very few of us do. If you think about, if you just gave attention to internal dialogue, and in particularly internal dialogue, which is captivating and distressing, you know, you will see it interferes with your breath. I mean, what, you know, if you, uh, um, uh, uh, if you can th think about something that makes you anxious, like you know, your mother-in-law or something. <laughs> something that makes you really anxious. So, <laughs> you know, and the moment, if, if you then for a moment stopped and then just shifted your attention from the noise of the mother-in-law in the head to what's happening in your chest, you'll find it's somewhat constricted. <laughs> you know, because that's what fear does. It kind of, you know, you're trying holding on to your breath and you know, it's kind of a, so our, our internal dialogue is actually gets, it, it is in concert with your, with your breath. It almost steals some of its life force from your breath. It interferes with your natural breathing. You know, it, it, so, so, so the, the being that we've been made to be, the being that we've been conditioned to be, by our society, by, you know, that which has made us a fire worshiper or a Christian or whatever, that being is parasitic. It is made up of all of these little bits of noise that are going on, all that, that are kind of like feeding off your breath. Mm. But if you discovered, if you swept it all aside and discovered who's the breather, you'll also discover the one who is fresh from his rub. How, how can we say this? In other words, the infant that's just born has just come from the rub. So if you discover the breather, you discover the one who's just come from the rub, who's still intimate with the rub. And you know, you can see this in infants. You can see that they're still in, they're still in the rib. You can see this. I mean, I've just had again my another granddaughter born recently. So, so you know, I mean, when, when this child was born, I mean, you could see this child was looking into soup. She couldn't make out what she was looking at. It was like, it was like all this undifferentiated, she was like, almost like still part of the amniotic fluid, you know, it was like, like swimming in something. Now she's different. Now she can, she's actually giving, she can pick you up. She can pick that, you know, she sees. That's a learned skill. This thing of different, being able to both differentiate forms out there and experiencing myself as differentiated from the world that I'm in is a learned experience. Our first experience isn't that experience. Our first experience is one with a lot. Mm. Continuity. One with a lot. And that's the one who breathes. So find the breather and you'll find who you are. If you think if you try and find yourself by looking for Sajjad, you're going to stay lost for the next millennium. I'll breathe. Breathe. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> so when we talk about leaving it up to Allah, something this means sitting in the, what does this mean? Sitting in the corner and doing nothing? What would you say about that? You know, I mean, so, so we're very familiar with that wonderful um, hadith of the Rasul Sallallahu being asked by a Bedouin about his camel. Mm. So, I mean, I don't have to tie my camel, I can just leave it to Allah. Mm. Uh, the Rasul very wisely said, no, 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 no. 
you tie the camel and you trust in Allah. Mm. You know, there's, um, <clears throat> I just recently, I've, um, I've, I've uh, uh, my son bought me a bow, so I'm now fiddling with archery. And uh, one of the things I've uh, sort of came across in this process is, is a little bit of a, how the Ottomans thought about archery. Now, evidently, this archery is very important to the Rasul Salas. And I've, evidently, there's a hadith that he said that uh, between the archer and his target is a stretch of paradise. Yeah. Now, the other insight, which evidently the, the Ottomans really made a big noise about uh, and used in their archery, is said that the um, the pulling the drawing of the bow is up to the archer. The flight of the arrow is up to Allah. But there wouldn't be a flying arrow if there wasn't a drawing a drawn bow. Now, what what am I trying to suggest here? If we say that leaving it up to Allah, leave the outcome to Allah. Leave where the arrow is going to hit. Leave that to Allah. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to draw the bow. So another way of looking at this to distinguish, to make sense out of this, this discussion is to think about the difference between process and outcome. You know, uh, what we do and the result of what we do. There is never an excuse for you not to do the very best that you can in the moment that you're in. You know, but to judge you on the basis of the results is not just. It's not fair. So um, in our business, we have a, a little thought experiment to help understand what we mean by this. We call it the tale of the two farmers. And uh, so you get farmer one, let's call him Sajan Sahab is a very, as you would be, he's a very uh, committed farmer. He works his entire guts out the season. I mean, the man really is completely committed to this crop. You know, I mean, you've had the appropriate training. You've uh, been to the right agricultural college. You, you know, the, you do hydration tests on the soil three times a day. I mean, the, you don't take a break. The entire season, you work yourself to death to create a really good crop. And at just the wrong time, there's a plague of locusts and you lose 80% of your crop. Tragic, Sir John. Um, your neighbor, Nadim, is what we in South Africa would refer to as a, a veranda farmer. This is a guy who sits the entire season on the veranda of his farmhouse with a a half jack of brandy open next to him, you see. And he does nothing because he's too inebriated to do anything the whole season. So his workers come to him and they ask him, Bosch, what should we do? Yeah, and what should we do? But lucky for him, at just the right time, there's a massive hailstorm. So Allah puts nitrogen into the soil for him. And as a result, Nadim gets a good crop. Now, if we were to judge you on the basis of the results, who would we reward and who would we punish? You know, I'd punish you and I'd reward uh, uh, Nadim. Now, how on earth is this even rational? Mm. Yeah. 
so you so you don't judge people on their on on their but that doesn't mean to say you don't do anything you see so do the best that you can and then trust the outcome to allah get your posture right draw the bow right you cannot predict where that arrow is going to fly there might be a crosswind there might be that's not the outcome is not your problem it's the input is your problem the results of your life aren't your problem what you get from life isn't your problem it is what you contribute to life that is your problem moment by moment act on the basis of what is right now very often you can't even begin to work out the consequences of having done a correct action now because the thing doesn't the, the allah doesn't work in straight lines that's why we call it faith you know that we believe that things work out I mean, by definition, to do what is appropriate in the situation that you do that you're in right now, very often requires you to do things that are inexpedient to do. In other words, it's not going to work for you. Mm. You know, if you if you an honest person, for instance, when a per, an honest person by being honest, you only know that the person is honest when they say speak the truth when it's not going to suit them to do so. I mean, if you speak the truth in situations where it suits you to do so, you're not demonstrating your honesty. I mean, that's you know. Honesty means I stay honest when it doesn't suit me to do so. In other words, I I act on the basis of what Allah wants from me, even if it is inexpedient to do, even if I don't see a direct line of sight between a beneficial outcome and what I'm doing now. And the more we do that, the more we can act on the basis of what's the right thing to do, even if there isn't a, a visible beneficial outcome, the more the outcomes that come of stupendous and miraculous and beyond what we can even begin to underfathom. You know, I mean, how often did you see here that you you did a kindness to somebody you forgotten person fifteen years ago, and an opening comes from that. That's uh, that's how life is. That's that's how he's created his existence. So don't don't. Uh, don't make the outcome your problem. Make the input your problem. If we say trust in Allah, doesn't mean to say sit in the corner and do nothing. Do the best that you can, and then leave the outcome to Him. How does fear relate to the breath, and can we change fear through the control of our breath? So, so um, uh, uh, if I'm personally very nervous of heights. Um, I, I have, um, so I, I can speak for myself. I don't know if anything you're nervous of, maybe dogs or something that you're nervous of. Okay, just imagine whatever you're nervous of. I'm not asking you to confess to anything. Yeah, this is not the aim of this talk. So, so let me give you an example. If I stand anywhere near a precipice. One of the ways that you can tell that I'm very uncomfortable with this is that I'm not breathing normally. Mm. You know, my breathing is restricted. So clearly, fear does affect how we breathe. When we're frightened, we, it's almost like we try, because we're trying to hold on to our lives. We sort of hold on to our breath. You know, <gasps> you know, it's like restricted. You know, and um, so uh, uh, I think we can transcend our fear. By basically just breathing it out, so you've heard this. I mean, so so you know, you know, just breathe deeply. 
feel uncomfortable, distressed, breathe deeply. Because you do breathe your fear out. And particularly if you connect that with the dhikr. I mean, if you sort of, uh, you know, just, just Allah, this deep kind of Allah, you can feel the distress leaving you. you know? However, it's very dangerous to talk about this as controlling of breath. You know, I mean, you don't want to control your breath. You want to befriend your breath. Mm. You know, I mean, this thing of us dominating this living, this life, this, this breather that we spoke about before, that was the you that came in. This thing that you can sort of put reins on it, you know, put a bit in its mouth and ride it. That's not being Muslim. Mm. You know, because you, that thing isn't something you control. That's something you collaborate with. That's something that becomes, in fact, that's something you treat with utmost respect and respect being you aren't the one that I dominate. You're the one who dominates me. If the breathers stop breathing, you dead, Sajjad. You don't control that thing. That thing controls you. Yeah. You don't stop. So, so, so the way of being Muslim, the one who submits, is by definition not the one who tries to dominate life. Mm. You know, my own life, any life. I'm not the commander, the sort of the one who sits at the pinnacle of my, or the, the, or of my, my, the throne of my life with all the reins tied to outcomes tied to my fingers, you know, and controlling them, control my breath, I control my peristalsis, I control, no, this is not who we are. You know, we're, we're, we're ones who work with, we're the friends of both life and our life. We're not the dominators of life and our life. All the techniques that we do, the, the dhikr, the salah, everything that we do is about foregoing, giving up. Salm is about giving up, foregoing, not about dominating. Giving in, not brutalizing. Not trying to control. No. I can tell you a really interesting story about this. I don't know if we're running out of time. We've got about four minutes. When I was a, a young man, I was involved with, uh, with a group of Muslims. And the way in which we saw this in South Africa is that we were going to establish Islam. You see, we wanted to buy uh, uh, a, 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 a town, buy literally buy out a town uh, in just down the valley here, and incrementally just put Muslims in it so that we could control the town. Mm. And I went to my sheikh at the time. He said, "What are you up to?" I described him. I was so excited as any young, you know, we're going to establish the deen in this town, you know. We're going to dominate the kuffar. <laughs> and he looked at me like he just couldn't believe what had come out of my mouth. He said, what, what an unbelievably Christian attitude. <laughs> you know, I said, what do you mean? He said, that's what they do. They dominate. Under the heel, the inquisition. You know, that's what they did historically. 
surely we've only ever worked with. That's why people became Muslims and the Muslims took over, because we became their allies, we became their friends, we never dominated. I mean, even the Ottoman Empire wasn't particularly dominating. They tolerated Christian communities literally for centuries in their own midst. They didn't dominate. That's not, that's not the way of the Muslim to dominate. The way of the Muslim is to succor, is to collaborate, to enhance, to nurture, not to dominate. So, so the, it's a way of being. It's a way of being that isn't just about how you deal with the world around you. It's actually a, the, the courtesy whereby you treat your own life. You don't, dom you don't control your breath. You don't dominate your breath. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's an inappropriate way of being. It's not the one who is Muslim. It's not the way of the one who has submitted, who practices Islam, submission. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. We've still got a couple of minutes here. Can we do another one? Another question? I think so, yeah. And let's not do Al Asr because there's no way I can do yeah, just a few minutes. I mean, on that note, I mean, what you said earlier on was just, just, this, just, just a recap of this, feeling the breath of discourse for everything that you've mentioned, the breathing, the, you know, one's intention and where we are. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Anything else that you want to say um, um, about this chapter? What inspired you to talk about freeing the breath? And uh, you mentioned the Hadra as well, which mm. I find, I mean, I, I personally want to look into that in more detail and join one of the Hadras just mm. to experience the, mm. the breath. I've done, done a few of them, but... Mm just to be back into it with the, all of lockdown and everything else. It's just... Yeah, no, yeah. Lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I think... So, I mean, for me, you know, for me, the, the, the image of the freed breath is an alarm. So we've got about 30 seconds before we've got time. And what okay. we can do is we can talk about that in Discourse 5. No, I think it's, uh, just leave it at that. I mean, that's what the human breath does when the human breath is, you know, it's a calling out. Yes. It's a voluble calling out and bearing witness to. Ashhadu. That's breath. That's so the human voice. Perfect point to conclude. Thank you, sir. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Thank you once again. It's been wonderful, sir. Thank you. Listeners, you are listening to Millennium Discourses. We will be back tomorrow with another topic. We would like to thank Etzko Skatema. Till tomorrow, Allah Hafiz. <laughs>